I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest on The Literary Life today, this afternoon, is the great Jenny Lawson. Jenny is, and, and this is from her, her bio page. Uh, Jenny is an award-winning humorist known for her great candor in sharing her struggle with mental illness. She lives in Texas with her husband and daughter and was constantly buying too many books. Not a real thing, she insists. So she decided to skip the middleman and just started her own bookshop, which also serves booze, because books and booze are what magic is made of. She has previously written Let's Pretend This Never Happened and Furiously Happy, both of which were number one New York Times bestsellers. She also wrote You Are Here, which inexplicably made it onto the New York Times bestseller list in spite of the fact that it was basically a very fun coloring book. She would like to be your friend unless you're a real asshole. And yes, she realizes that this whole paragraph is precisely the reason she shouldn't be allowed to write her own bio. Welcome, Jenny Lawson. <laughs> that is, I think that gives people a taste of who you are. And I thank you. We're here because Jenny's got a new book coming out called Broken in the Best Possible Way, which I just loved. Welcome to Literary Life, Jenny Lawson. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. This is a uh, this is the closest that I ever get to um, you know talking to people in real life. So <laughs> this is yeah, it makes 
makes for a lot of us. So, yeah. but, but really, I'm also welcoming you as a, as a fellow bookseller. How is the book business? And how is it opening up during a pandemic of all things? It's, uh, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, I think that I need to check the Guinness Book of World Records because I think that we are possibly the longest running bookstore that has literally never opened our doors to customers. Um, it's been, it, it, we were supposed to start around, you know, March of last year. Um, and, and I was like, oh, you know what you should do to make money? We should open an independent bookstore in a pandemic. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we've never opened the doors, um, simply because we want to keep our, we want to keep our people safe and Texas is great. Um, but there are a lot of really, um, there's some people that just don't want to wear masks just in general. And I don't trust, uh, I don't trust everybody. So um, we have only done curbside service and our book club. And shockingly, we're actually doing really well um, just because we have such great support of people who joined the, the, uh, the book club, first of all, which we thought, I was like, well, if I could just get 100 people to join the book club, that's, we'll sell 100 books a month. That's something. And um, now I, I think we have two to 3,000 members, which is well, just shocking. It's called, it's called the Nowhere Bookshop, right? Yes, yes. And where, the, is it, where is it for everybody who wants to travel and go see you when you're open? So it's in San Antonio. And, um, and, and I always, I get to go on Sunday because Sunday nobody's there at the shop and so that's my like my one day that I go in and I'm like I can't leave my house for anything else but I do get to go to a bookstore and, and like steal all of the books which is just wonderful and has kept me sane um and I I named it nowhere just because I loved the idea of all of the nowhere places that you get to visit you know the you know whether it's Narnia or Middle Earth or all of these like these places that you go and they're so wonderful and solid for you, even though they don't really exist anywhere. And so I thought, well, I'll name it Nowhere Bookshop. And then, and then literally it's, it's going nowhere because nobody can go inside of it. <laughs> you, you've aptly named the bookshop, right? Um, exactly. exactly. How, did, how did you fare during the storm that just happened? Uh, it was um, it was absolutely insane. We we never lost power for more than we lost it off and on for quite a bit um, over several days, but never for more than I think fourteen hours was the the largest period of time. Our biggest problem was that we didn't have water for days, and um, so I would go outside to the pool. And I would like pick up, uh, you know, water and then I would take, I would, you know, lug it inside and so we could actually like flush our toilets. And every time that I would start to like feel bad, like the third or fourth day of like not having a shower and not having running water, I would be like, Laura Ingalls would think this was the fanciest well ever. I should not feel bad about this. Um, and then we finally did get, get water back and so lucky that we didn't have any pipes that burst inside. But the pipe that did burst, it was the out, is outside, and it's the one that leads 
to the pool to fill the pool up. Um, so now every day I fill up water from inside the house and I take it back out and I pour it into the pool so it doesn't oh, get too low. <laughs> oh, so the pool doesn't pop out, right? Yeah, exactly. That's really, I know. It's, you know, we go through that with hurricanes and we always have that, there's that, that sense of the world just flying apart for a little while. But then it does tend to come together a little bit. Anything in the whole process of being a bookseller that's a little odd and different? Yeah, the um, I think one of the, the main things is how absolutely wonderful other booksellers are. Like, you know, when, when, when I first started, um, I didn't really know what to think about it. And I'm really lucky that um, Elizabeth Jordan, you know, part partnered with us. She said to say hello, by the way, uh, partnered with us. And she knows so much about about book selling and you know she was like so much of what you learn and and so and you know you share so much with other booksellers and other independent stores and I was just like is there any other business like that where you 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 don't look at the other independent bookstores as your competitors instead you're like oh this one's struggling let's send some people there let's do this let's do um I I absolutely love the the community that exists and the, the like caring and, and compassion. And that was something that I had not expected. I'm moving into my 40th year and I, I couldn't imagine a better community than a community of book people. It is absolutely amazing. And you've made such a marvelous choice by partnering with Elizabeth. She is phenomenal. She is, you know, one of, one of the great booksellers in this country. And, I think when you get open, I can't wait to come and see what trouble you're going to make down there because it's going to be amazing. I'm so excited. You know, um, when when we first, a year ago, when uh, when we were like, oh, you know, we should have a grand opening. And because I have anxiety disorder, I was like, I don't think I can do a grand opening because it makes me really scared to think about a lot of people in one place. And so I thought at the time, I was like, what if we do instead of a grand opening, we have a... A series of bland openings and just like once a month we're just like you can come and you know we'll have like a sale and we'll do something fun and then if you don't want to come you can come next month and we'll just do it like we'll just spread it out so people don't feel like oh I missed out you just feel like whatever come next month that's fine um and and so now I'm like well that worked out because we still haven't had a bland or oh, really ready. I love the idea of a bland opening I think that is that's absolutely perfect for you. So let's talk about Broken. So sure. this truly is what happened to me because I'm one of the more suggestible people in the world. So I've known about your books for years. I've sold thousands of them, but I was always a little frightened of diving into it because I'm so suggestible. It reminded me of when I was a freshman at the University of Colorado and I took an abnormal psych class and I had to drop it because I became everybody I was reading about. So there was a little bit of that fear, you know, <laughs> of, of like personalizing everything I read about. And before you know it, I'd be like living inside your brain, which is part of the strength of your book. And, but once I got over that and I started reading your work and I fell in love with everything you, you, you were writing about, it was the openness coupled with the humor, which was just so terribly powerful. You talked about radical honesty. So talk a little bit about 
you know, why you do what you do and what the meaning has been for your readership? So I started, I've always written because I am like, I have very extreme anxiety. I've always been a very, very strong introvert. And so um, writing and reading are really my only ways of, of communication that I feel very comfortable with. And um, so I started blogging about, I don't know, maybe 12, 14 years ago, something like that. Um, and I would write these, you know, sort of funny stories of what it was like being me, working in HR, being a mother. Um, and I would have these extra posts set up for whenever I was going through a really deep depression and I like, you know, couldn't get out of bed and couldn't do anything and I could slide those in. And I would be like on the couch, like unable to do anything. And I would post those and I would see these comments coming in saying like, you're so funny, you're so great. And the cognitive dissonance of sharing something that felt, first of all, inaccurate, um, but secondly, having people think that like everything's so hunky-dory and so happy was even more uh, terrible than just not talking at all. And so I thought, I'm like creating a lie, like a false history here. So I'm just going to come out and say that, you know, struggle with anxiety and depression. And what was um, really shocking was not only like thousands of people who said, oh my God, me too. I also feel like I'm worthless. I also, you know, have days when I can't function and where I feel like the world would be better off without me. Um, and what's really, what's really interesting is that I started getting, um, over the next year or so, I started getting these letters from people who would say that they were actively in the process of planning their suicide and decided not to, not because of what I wrote, but because they saw thousands of people responding to me saying, me too, me too. I'm also alone. I'm also, my family, my family would be better off without me. And they looked at those and they said, that can't possibly be right. Like that's obviously depression is lying to these people. And then they thought, but if it's lying to them, maybe it's lying to me. And maybe I deserve to go out and try to get some help. And, and every single one of them were saved by, by these anonymous people who were out there just anonymously saying, I, I'm, I'm messed up too. And, and I think that is such a wonderful thing. And I wish I could reach out to every single person who left that anonymous comment feeling hopeless and say, your words saved somebody's kid or a mom or a dad or a friend. This, this, this turned into that folder of 24 that you talked yes. about. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's, that was the, the folder that I would keep that had all of these, um, the, the 24 letters from, from the, the first 24 people who, um, you know, had, had gone through this and whenever I would start to struggle and I would start to think, um, I'm never going to be funny again. Um, I feel like an imposter when people think that I'm funny because maybe I'll never be funny again because when I'm depressed, I'm not. Um, and whenever I would start to feel like I, my life wasn't worth it, I would go back and I would read these 
these letters and uh, they would just kind of remind me that depression does lie and that, um, that I am worthwhile. And so I wrote about the, the folder of, of 24 and after I wrote about it, I would have all the, of these people who would come through at book signing lines and they would have the same, the same eyes that I do. Like there's a certain look that you get from people who have not left their house in a couple of weeks of this just panicked, like I can't believe I'm standing around these people and I don't know what to say and just this, this terror. And they would, so often they would whisper, I'm 25. And there were so many 25s. There were, there were so many. Um, and it was just, I don't know. It's, um, I always feel like I get, I have gotten so much more back um, than I have given um, when it comes to the, the stuff that I, that I write every time that somebody says, oh, you saved me. They save me like over and over. It really is the circle of, of people just reaching out and saying, hey, do you need help right now? Because right now my brain isn't lying to me and I'm, I can tell you it's going to be okay. And it, it just makes such a difference because when you have the kind of brain that, that does tell terrible lies, just having someone say it to you, even, even though I know logically, because I've gone through it so many times, I know logically my brain can't be trusted. It's lying to me. I will get through it. There's still, when I'm in a depression, I, there's still in the back of my head of like, but maybe I won't. Like, maybe I'll never get up off the couch again. Maybe I'll just be like this forever. Um, so having a community of people who can say, hey, you're not alone. It's okay if the only thing that you did today is breathe and survive. I'm proud of you because that is a really big deal sometimes. You know, one of the things that's happened with me and the pandemic, I wonder if it's happened with you as well, is that I realize how important it is for me, for my own emotional well-being, to be among lots of people. Do you know what I mean? In mm -hmm. terms of what I get back from other people and what I learn from other people about myself. And having a bookshop, you know, is what I, you know, when hundreds of people would come in each day, you know, you have all these little mini interactions, which allow you to readjust the way you think about yourself. But that was, that's been gone pretty much for the last year, even though we've been open. And I miss that. I miss that incredibly. You have struggled with this for a long time and you found that writing really helps relieve a lot of it. But then through the writing, I think, if I read somewhere that you've also discovered that this is generational with you, right? Yeah, it's for me. It's it's hereditary. There's you know nothing bad happened to me that made me um, you know a little touched in the head, um, which in a way can be very uh, can be very nice because I don't have to deal with like oh I've got to go to therapy and work this out. Um, but instead, it can also be a little difficult because it's like oh I got to go to therapy and work out the fact that this is never going to go away because it's just part of me. <laughs> Um, I, I have a lot of family members who have dealt with um, a wide variety of um, mental illnesses and some of them did not uh, survive them and some of them, you know, ended up in mental hospitals and the, the treatment that uh, was given in the past was everything from, you know, hydrotherapy where they give them these like freezing cold baths to try to shock them did insulin therapy where they would put them into um, 
diabetic comas. They did just a, just an insane amount of um, very strange treatments. They did electroshock therapy, and electroshock therapy, like some people use it now with some pretty good effects, but the kind that was used back when my great grandmother or great great grandmother was in the mental institution was not not quite as good. Um, I am very lucky that I have the ability to try lots of different types of um, medications and therapies. I have been on, I think, maybe nine different types of antidepressants at one time or another, um, and antipsychotics and all that fun stuff. Um, and I'm always uh, talking to my doctor about different things that are available. And one of the things that she had recommended was uh, TMS, which is repetitive transcranial magnetic st uh, simulation, stimulation, stimulation. Um, but it's, it's basically, it sounds like absolutely ridiculous, but you put this sort of a helmet on and it uh, thumps magnetic pulses into your brain. And one side of your brain is where your depression sort of lives, and one side of the other, other half is where your anxiety lives. And so the doctors would go through and they would use your, um, they, they would actually use, what was interesting is they used TMS um, first to find out, like to try to map my brain. And so to do that, you do what I call the reverse Fonzie, where so like you hold your thumb up and they thump around in different parts of your brain with this magnetic drill which feels like you're being like hit in the head but it, it's not actually touching you at all it's just magnets um but when it hits this certain point your thumb automatically goes down and you can't control it it's it's like a you know when you hit your knee and your knee kicks so once they find that then they're like okay we can use this to map this is where your depression is and this is where and so they would use um one side to slow down the anxiety, the overactive anxiety, and then they would switch and use the other side. And so it was, um, I want to say it was about like an hour to an hour and a half a day for, I think it was about 30 to 40 treatments. Um, yeah. And it was, it's not comfortable, but after the, the like third or fourth day, you get so used to it that you could sleep through it. But then they wake you up because they're like, no, no, no. If you go to sleep, it, it messes up your brain. So no, 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 you have to stay awake. Um, so yeah, I would just basically watch Netflix and embroider while I would have it done. And so a, a, like a third, a third of the people who try it, and it, this is really just for treatment resistant depression. You have to go through a lot before you can get to the point where insurance will cover it. And even then, that was a nightmare. Um, but when they did finally cover it, about a third of the people, it doesn't affect them at all. A third of the people, it affects them somewhat. And a third of the people uh, go into remission, which I, I don't even know what that would look like, like full remission um, from depression and anxiety. But I got really close to remission with my anxiety for, I think it probably lasted about seven months with my anxiety. Mm -hmm. And with my depression, it helped pull me from a very, very deep depression into um, to like actually being able to work again. Um, so it made, it made a really big difference. I mean, this is a very, very funny book. And Luke <laughs> is extremely, Jenny is an extremely funny, funny. I thought of Lucy because I was thinking of Dave Barry, actually. 
And Dave Barry's new book has Lucy in the title. So uh, one of the questions that I had for you is, who are some of the other humorists or people that you admire who are writing about themselves and about their own experiences? Um, I think uh, Samantha Irby is probably one of my very favorites. Um, Ali Brosh, uh, David Sedaris is great. Um, I love uh, Dorothy Parker. And I mean, there's so many. Christopher Moore is great. And um, Jack Handy. And I mean, there's so many really funny people. What I think is really wonderful is whenever I would get very stuck and I I'm to the I I'm one of those people where it may be three or four weeks but in between writing chapters because I'm just waiting for that inspiration of like how can I make this funny how can I make this like exciting and something that people will read and feel hope um and a lot of times I will go back and I'll read like uh Samantha Irby's book and as I'm reading it there will be something that she'll write and I'll be like oh, that reminds me of this thing. And basically I'm writing back to her. Um, so many of my chapters, and I've told her this, like so many of my chapters are basically me just responding to her to say, that reminds me of this one time when, um, and it, it, it's, it's interesting. I wonder how often that happens where your, your chapters are really just books talking to each other. Well, speaking about your chapters, I just need to, I'll just read some of the titles of your chapters. <laughs> I don't have to go into them, but this gives you, I want the listener to understand what's in store for them. It starts off, which I think is fantastic. Jenny Lawson, full-grown mammal in introduction, which I really love. Um, I'll just skip around. And then I bought condoms for my dog. Doesn't everybody do that? Yes. Um, uh, Samuel Jackson is trying to kill me. Mm -hmm. um, how do dogs know they have penises? True. Uh, not going outside anymore. Uh, an open letter to my health insurance company. You really do a good job with that, with health insurance. <laughs> and, you know, I think, I think you should go in front of Congress and read it, I think. Uh, <laughs> introverts unite, but sweet baby Jesus, not in real life. <laughs> <laughs> my dentist hates me the secret to a long marriage what is the secret to a long marriage jenny the secret to a long marriage is um a truly a very bad memory um my memory is so awful that i can never remember what it is that i'm currently mad at my husband about and uh, he really takes advantage of that so so really it's it's just my terrible terrible memory that has kept us to the point where i'm pretty sure there have been several times where i've been like that's it i'm getting a divorce and i'll like start to pack the car and then victor will throw his suitcase in and be like i can't believe you agreed to go with me on this vacation and i'm like we're going on a what what just happened and uh yeah yeah well, and you start the book in a way that I love because it's a, a guy that I've always loved. You have an epigram from Leonard Cohn. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a song that has always spoken to me as well. And it's ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. It's just so, so beautiful. Um, talk a little bit about why that means so much to you. So that's one of my favorite songs in spite of the fact that I literally cannot listen to it because it puts me into a depression. Um, but the 
there is something about the idea that the broken parts of yourself change you in such a way that it makes you more open to different things. And, and I think, um, you know, for, for people that I have known who have struggled and maybe it's with depression or anxiety or chronic pain, or they've gone through something really difficult in their life, that typically tends to, sometimes it can make you a mean, angry, scared person, but more often than not, I found that it makes you have an extreme level of compassion um, for other people and their struggles. And so I think that is, um, it, it's so important to recognize that even when we're going through like the worst level of bullshit, this can actually, you can come out on the other side and that crack can help to heal other people. Um, you know, one of the, so on the, on the cover of the book is a portrait that um, one of my friends, Omar Ayan, did. And uh, he, he had these, he, he had these great portraits that he would do of these um, girls and women. And they would always be like, they were these beautiful, like romantic sort of uh, Victorian-esque uh, sort of settings. And then they would be holding these horrible looking beasts every single one of them and when I saw his series on that I was like I have never seen a better representation I know he didn't do it on purpose but to me it was 100% what it's like dealing with mental illness because even though it is this like monster at the same time I'm still holding it close and keeping it warm and saying it's gonna be okay because um, it is a part of me it does have some um, advantages in that I think it does make me more empathetic to other people. And um, it has brought me down a very strange and weird road uh, that I don't think that I would have found if it wasn't for the broken parts of myself. The very last thing you say in the book is embrace your beasties, love your awkwardness, enjoy yourself, celebrate the bizarreness that is you because i assure you you are more wondrous than you can possibly imagine monsters and all it's an amazing it's an amazing message to get across to everybody who needs that message and i believe that's everybody <laughs> needs that message absolutely absolutely and you know I mean, the great thing about that is that there's, it's very freeing for me to write that because it allows me to continue to sort of forgive myself for not being perfect or like this idea that I have in my mind of like what a, a good wife or mother or writer or whatever looks like and how I'm not um, adding up to that. Uh, but more importantly, it gives other people permission to share their mortification and their awkwardness. And the thing is, is those stories are the ones that people love. Like if you, if you were like, let me tell you about how thin I am. Let me tell you about my new car. Let me tell, I'd be like, okay, whatever. I'm just going to sit here and wait until it's my turn to talk again. But if you were like, let me tell you about the most embarrassing thing that happened to me in seventh grade and I can't sleep at night because at three o'clock in the morning, it's all I can think about. I'm like, I am 100% in and we are now best friends. Um, so, so I think it's actually, it's such a wonderful thing, not only to give yourself permission, but it's so great because it spreads. All of a sudden, everybody is like, oh, 
oh, I can tell that embarrassing story. There's actually an entire chapter in the book that is just embarrassing stories that people shared with me on Twitter after I shared one of mine. And um, what's really great is, first of all, it went on for days and days. And I had thousands, and they were so funny. I would have tears coming down my face as I would read them. And, um, and, and they were so magnificent. And every time somebody would read one and they would be like, oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you this one. And they would top them and top them and top them. Um, and what's really wonderful is when I wrote this book, I thought, I have got to find a way to write about that because I love, first of all, they're the best stories ever. Um, and I love that um, all of these people were telling these things that had just like been the worst cringy things ever. And then suddenly they were celebrated and suddenly they, you know, um, everybody was laughing with them. And so I reached out to every single one of these people um, that are in the book just to say like, hey, is it okay? Can I use this in the book? Are you okay with it? I'm going to credit you. And um, I did not have a single person who said no. Uh, in fact, all of the people were just like, absolutely. That was my most liked tweet ever. I ended up finding friends on the internet because people were like, let me tell you this story. That was so much fun. I'm so glad. And now they're like, they're like, now I'm going to be in a book about something that before had haunted me, and now I celebrate it. But Jenny, how do you know when you have a book? How do you know, you know you're writing these essays? Do you, do you take the essays and then shape it into something almost the way someone would do a record album, you know, in terms of ordering them and knowing, you know, giving the flow to what it is? I, I always get, I have sort of a basic theme before I start. Um, and typically, it takes me a really long time to write. A book. It can take, I think this one took five years. So I'm, I'm definitely, I'm super slow compared to, I think, most writers. Um, but I usually start with what my idea of the theme is going to be, and then it sort of turns into something else. So like on my first book, it was going to be all about, you know, growing up in poverty, but still, you know, really loving um, you know, where I came from, and then it ended up about, like, embracing being weird, and, like, each, each one of my books have these specific themes, and I think this one really goes back to mortification and how awkwarding is what brings us all together. Um, the, what's, what's interesting is it wasn't until, and, and basically, I will write, I will write each essay, like, I'll, I'll come up, I'll, I'll think, okay, I have an idea, and I want to write about all the times that I've lost my shoes while wearing them, um, which seems like lots of people would have this, um, this, this same experience, but apparently not. And so I will have this idea and I'll, I'll work on it in my head for maybe a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden it'll click and I'll be like, oh, I need to write it in list form. And then, and right then I have to write it. And if anybody interrupts me, it's gone forever. And, um, so I, I will send these, these chapters and these essays out to my agent and to my editor, and um, they very often will, will pick out and be like, you know what, your real theme is broken. Like, you keep writing about these broken things and your brokenness, and, you're, and I'm like, oh, 
you're right. And they're like, and, and they, they try to give me credit. They're like, I love this running theme of the broken thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, I totally did that on purpose. I did not do that on purpose. So yeah, so that's that's actually, there's there's an entire chapter, the Shark Tank. What's the name of the chapter? It's called the Shark Tank chapter. It's the, uh, all of the things that I, um, my, my friends and I got really, really drunk. And uh, the four of us came up with uh, these terrible inventions that we would share on Shark Tank because Shark Tank reached out to me and they were like, we'd like you to write about stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that, but you should have me on. And, and I'll totally, and, and of course they were like, no, that's a terrible idea. Um, but we came up with all of these horrible inventions. And, um, but I thought they were really funny. Uh, but it was one of those things where like I read it and I think it's funny, but I was also really drunk when I wrote it. Um, but then everybody liked it. Everybody was like, no, let's keep it. Is there a little something you can read from it? Or is there any something you'd like to read at all? Oh my God. Okay. There's no way I could read. I could read from that one because it is, it, it's really terrible. It's, it, that is going to be the thing I think that keeps, because this, weirdly enough, my books do end up on, um, reading lists on like high school reading lists, which is so sweet. I'll keep it off. <laughs> right? This, that, this may be the one where they go like, oh, we're going to rip out those four pages. You'll have to um, do the expurgated edition. Of right, exactly. Exactly. Um, but I, but I do, I do have, if you want me to, I could read. I yeah. Okay. So I think the, the introduction gives like a really good idea of the, of the, the book itself and it's pretty short so okay. <clears throat> Jenny Lawson full-grown mammal an introduction you probably just picked up this book thinking what the shit is all this about and frankly I'm right there with you honestly I just got here myself by the time that you read this it will be an actual fully formed and probably horribly offensive book but at the time that I'm writing this it is just a bunch of sentences paralyzing anxiety and a lot of angst some people write a book a week, but I am achingly slow and filled with self-doubt and writer's block. So by the time that you read this, I will have gone through years of writing is so lonely and I hate everything and everyone. I will have gone through the writing period where I tell my husband that real writers write drunk and edit sober. And then later the editing period when I tell him that I have edited this notion and have to write drunk and also edit drunk, and even the period where I just lock myself in a room and force myself to write, and it is glorious and beautiful until I wake up the next day and realize it's garbage and delete everything. You, on the other hand, will only see the finished product. Glossy and edited and pasted together with the tears of copy editors whom I have sent to an early grave and or multiple bars. Will it be worth it? No damn idea. But I can't stop because writers write always. Not well, necessarily, but they write. And you are a reader. So you read, unless you are listening to the audiobook, in which case I guess you are a hearer. Is that right? That seems like the wrong word, but I can't think of the correct one right now, but I bet that you are a great hearer, even if that word doesn't exist. I don't even know you, and I can tell that you're special, mostly because everyone seems special to me. And granted, some of that is because I have avoidant personality disorder and imposter syndrome, which automatically makes me think that everyone in the world is better than me, but some of it is because you're still reading this, or 
hearing it, even though it is pretty obvious that I'm stalling because I'm not sure what to write about. And I appreciate that, and I owe you a drink. Oh, listening to. Those are the words that I was looking for, not hearing, although I sort of like the melody of the word hearing now, so you know what, let's keep it. This whole introduction is a pretty good indication of the baffling wordsmithery that you can expect here. And it's a good thing because number one, now you've been warned and so you can't blame me if you hate this book. And number two, you are gonna feel so much better about yourself in comparison. I'm not just saying that to flatter you. Truly, I have managed to fuck up shit in a shockingly impressive way and still be considered a fairly accept acceptable person. In some ways, I have actually made it my living. And because I am so good at being publicly terrible, other people feel comfortable telling me about how awful they are at being an adult, and then I try to top them with, oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you about how I tried to rescue a decapitated human head from my work, and then they're like, uh-uh, no, hold my beer, and in the end, I end up with a new best friend because how could you not love a person who couldn't understand where those terrible farting noises were coming from on the bus, but then she realized that they were the noises of the dog toy in her purse that she was leaning on and everyone looked at her and so she ended up shaking a rubber foot at them while yelling I'm not farting it's my dog's foot answer you can't you love them hard and it's weird because we often try to present our fake shiny happy selves to others and make sure we're not wearing too obvious pajamas at the grocery store but really who wants to see that level of fraud no one what we really want to know is that we are not alone in our terribleness. We want to appreciate the failure that makes us perfectly us and wonderfully relatable to every other person out there who is also pretending that they have their shit together and didn't just eat the onion ring that fell on the floor. Human foibles are what make us us, and the art of mortification is what brings us all together. A lot of people read my books because they love to laugh about all the terrible things that you maybe shouldn't laugh about. And I hope that you find that this book is just as funny, but there's also some really serious and raw stuff in here too, mostly related to my battles with mental illness. If I could choose the themes of, um, of my life, I assure you that this book would be all about my successful auto rescue and how I became a sexy vampire who isn't allergic to dairy, but we don't get to pick who we are. I am still as broken as I was before, but with better stories and a little more insight into just how fucked up I am. Even the title for this introduction comes from a conversation I had with a friend where we tried to win worst at adulting. I pointed out that I could barely even be human and that at most I was just a full grown mammal, but then I remembered that the things that make you a mammal is laying live young instead of eggs and lactating that I couldn't even lactate properly. But then I remembered that men don't lay live young and they're still mammals and I thought maybe I needed to consult a science book because I fucked up the definition or that maybe it was just another situation where men just get a pass because of the whole I own a penis thing. And then my friend was like, I don't think you're supposed to say that you lay live young. And I was like, yeah, poor phrasing on my part. But in my defense, I can't even mammal correctly. And she refused to accept that and instead, she insisted that I recognize my accomplishments. You, she said encouragingly and with confidence, are Jenny Lawson, full grown mammal. And I said, I think you just came up with my next book title. And she was like, I think you could do better. But guess what, I can't and now I feel bad again. But fuck that. 
Fuck feeling bad about eating floor onion rings. Fuck the shame that comes from wearing your clothes to bed so you're technically never or always in your pajamas. Fuck the people who make you feel bad for glorifying the odd behavior and questionable decisions that make you who you are. Those things are perfectly acceptable. Be good, be kind, love each other. Fuck everything else. The only thing that matters is how you feel and how you've made others feel. And I, I feel okay for the moment. And I make others feel okay by being a barometer of awkwardness and self-doubt. I am Jenny Lawson, full-grown mammal. And I'm ready to begin. Oh, that was wonderful. I'm so glad I was a hearer of that one. <laughs> Jenny, you're remarkable. Thank you so much for being on The Literary Life today. Thank you. This was so much fun.